0: I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please begin.
1: Oh, Thank you so much, Norma, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's cancer care program. So the program today is for caregivers, care coordination for your loved one living with cancer and other health problems, and this is part four of a five-part series of Life with Cancer, and today's program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and many other cancer organizations, and it really is because of your interest in the program today, as well as are um, all of these collaborating organizations helping to spread the word about the program, that we have on the program over 462 participants, and you come from all over the United States, so from both rural, urban Suburban and frontier communities, and we also have international participants from Canada, Norway, Sweden, Taiwan, and the United Kingdom, so it's a bit of a global call as well. And today's program is supported by a number of uh, industry supporters, AbbVie, Bristol-Myers Squibb, the Celgene Corporation, Ethicon, part of the Johnson & Johnson family of companies, Gilead, Takeda Oncology, a grant from Genentech, an educational grant from Pharmacyclics, LLC, an ADVI company, and Janssen Biotech, Inc., administered by Janssen Scientific Affairs, LLC, and Exalexis, Inc. I really want to thank them for their support of the program, and not just for today's program, but for this entire five-part series. Now, we have wonderful speakers on our program today, and I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Stuart Fleischman. Dr. Fleischman is former founding director, of Cancer Support Services, Continuum Cancer Centers of New York, and he's an author, researcher, in oncology. And Dr. Fleischman is going to be addressing an overview of cancer and comorbidities or other health problems, the role of caregivers in care coordination for people living with cancer and comorbidities, adherence or taking their pills on schedule, and tips for communicating with the healthcare team about care coordination. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Fleischman.
2: Thank you, Dr. Messner, and thank you, everybody, for taking the time to participate in today's call. Hope we can make this as practical and useful for you as possible. So uh, Dr. Messner asked me to start with some of the basics, and uh, what is cancer and uh, why is it so problematic? Um, Cancer is an overgrowth of cells. Um, many Too many cells grow in too small a space, which creates um, an extra mass or a lump or a tumor, depending upon the type of language um, that is used to describe it, or, or a mass. And uh, that mass takes up space where it hadn't been previously, and it often affects the um, job that that tissue has in the body. So if it's... Um, In the muscle or if it's in the bladder or if it's in the bowel it prevents that tissue from actually uh, functioning the way it would normally Um, what's more cancer can sometimes uh, but not all the time um, send off individual cells that can um, grow in the close-by tissue Those cells can go into the lymphatic system, the the sort of drainage system that helps the body clear uh, some of the waste products from the cells and from the circulation. Those cells may also go into the bloodstream, which can carry them to other parts of the body further away from where the original cancer started to grow. Uh, And each cancer has particular types of microenvironments in the different organs where it uh, may like to grow. And uh, only recently, and I say recently in the last, I guess 20 years or so, has it been acknowledged that as these cells are growing, they give off proteins that, that can um, circulate through the body that cause um, many different types of um, full body problems that res- result from having this tissue growing too quickly. Um, those are sometimes called cytokines in medicine. Sometimes if a, something has a Greek or Latin name, it seems more official, so cyto for cell and kind for protein. And those proteins can affect uh, many things, including um, our level of um, energy or fatigue, uh, some pain syndromes. Um, most likely, the effect on our, our appetite and our ability to eat and retain um, calories and sometimes even our mood and uh, depression. And there are a number of other factors. Um, cancer can Different types of cancers can happen at different stages of life. There are certain cancers that happen in adolescence and adulthood and late adulthood. But as a general rule, many cancers are the result of getting older. Um, we could have a whole call in speculating why that happens, but it's probably some interplay between genetics and our internal environments and the um, chemicals that are in our outside environment, which enter our body. But that's really for a different time. Um, but we do know that as people get older without cancer, they can develop other chronic illnesses, such as high blood pressure, or diabetes or arthritis and those um conditions um occur at the same time as the cancer and they can complicate the management of cancer and the treatment of cancer manages can can sometimes complicate the um, the care that we give for high high blood pressure or diabetes and arthritis which is I think why we're having this call today because the it, it's hard to sometimes know who's in char- which which treatment team is in charge it's hard to know who to go to with a particular problem um once you're either have, are being diagnosed with cancer or in the middle of treatment and it's hard for caregivers to figure out sort of how to how to manage this 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 new group of people that suddenly in our lives when we're diagnosed and treated with cancer so it is um uh, it is kind of thing that needs a little bit of attention what uh, we generally uh, recommend is that once uh, somebody is diagnosed or treated with cancer that the cancer treatment team should become the main source of information the main source of treatment and the main source of referral many times and this this varies across the country and different parts of the world and in different countries things may be very different But whether you're treated in a small uh, private office or in a cancer center associated with a regular uh, medical surgical hospital or in an all-cancer center in any of these settings, often the oncologist, be it the surgical oncologist, medical oncologist, radiation oncologist, is in charge of your care for a period of time, and the um, parts of your care that they're not comfortable in doing or don't uh, that that should be continued by your primary care doctor, there needs to be sort of a dialogue and a decision between the oncology team and your primary care team about who's going to be in charge of what. It's important because sometimes the treatments can make things worse. So for example, if a cancer treatment causes bone pain, let's say, and someone has arthritis before that, well, um, is the bone pain from the arthritis or is the bone pain from the cancer treatment? And the kinds of things that we may do without cancer being on board can be different than in the middle of treatment. For example, if non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs or things like ibuprofen can interfere with the stickiness of platelets and our platelet count is decreased from chemotherapy or radiation. Is that the best thing to use for arthritis even though you've been using it many, many um, years before that? And that's a question of concern that needs to be addressed primarily by the oncology team in consultation with the specialists. Sometimes this, these areas become so super specialized that there are, in, especially in larger cities, larger cancer centers in the United States and around the world, sub-specialists who are um, very knowledgeable and experienced in the comorbidities or the um, illnesses that come either from the cancer, from the treatment, or treatment of regular um, non-cancer diseases that are intimately changed by the cancer and its treatment. And you will, often, you will find that there are people in these larger centers who are cardiologists with a specific, um, a specific skill in the overlap between cancer and heart disease, or neurologists, or a urologists, or I can pretty much get, take any specialty. And in some of the larger centers who often see patients do research and teaching in these areas, there are sub-super specialists who are really involved with the management of the the, this, the interface between the cancer and the other illnesses. And it's important that the cancer treatment team be the coordinating factor. So for caregivers, I think the smartest thing to do is to have questions first fielded by the cancer treatment team, whichever uh, oncology subspecialist is involved with care first and then uh, try to uh, see if they're going to take care of it or they're going to have you see a specialist or they feel it's part outside of the effect of cancer and its treatment and it should be handled by the primary care your primary care provider with information coming back to the cancer treatment team. And that's the part that really challenges coordinators because it's kind of hard to know who to call and when. Um, And many places will actually have a cancer navigation program where there will be uh, a nurse or other cancer specialist who you can call to help direct um, who should be involved with answering your questions and perhaps uh, a change in medication, um, adding physical therapy, any one of a number of things that can happen as a result of the decision making between the cancer treatment team and the specialist. And it can involve even things like uh, what time of the day you take your medications, or medications skipped on certain days, um, down to really nitty-gritty details. And um, in, in most cancer treatment teams, somebody is assigned to handle these first-line questions and then they are um discussed or with the with the oncologist or with the, sub, the cancer subspecialist or uh, information is passed to and from the primary care doctor so i think the the sort of the the overall uh, approach here is to start with the cancer treatment team first and then see what needs to go to each of those other medical providers in order to make sure that everybody is thinking in the same way and that you're getting a consistent message, and if there is an inconsistent message, that they communicate with themselves and come to a decision so uh, you know what to do for yourself or if you're coordinating care for a relative or a loved one for the patient being treated with cancer. So it's a sort of a complicated area, but that's a basic approach, and I'll turn this back to Dr. Messner.
1: Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Fleischman, for really setting the stage for today's program and really identifying some of the issues of having both cancer and other health problems as well and how to manage them, so thank you. And our next speaker is Dr. Guadalupe Palos. And Dr. Palos is a nurse, um, a social worker, and a doctor of public health, and she's clinical protocol administrative, administration manager, Office of Cancer Survivorship, University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center. And Dr. Palos is going to be addressing challenges of coordinating your loved one's care and follow-up appointments, lead time in refilling prescriptions and planning for visitors, weekends, special occasions, travel, and holidays, tips on choosing community, medical, and home care resources to improve your quality of life, and time-saving self-care, self-advocacy tips for caregivers. So I'm going to now turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Palos.
3: Good afternoon, and thank you, Carolyn, for the opportunity to be involved in this discussion of care coordination and its impact on patients, caregivers, family members, and even the providers who care for them. So I'd like to congratulate each of you for being on this call and being proactive by listening and learning more about this topic. Dr. Fleshman gave an excellent overview of complex issues caregivers and patients face when they care for a loved one diagnosed. And also, and then also, have other comorbid or chronic diseases. He addressed the multiple struggles caregivers and patients face in keeping track of all the details related to complex appointments and medication schedules. Now, one of the most successful strategies in um, achieving care coordination, or excuse me, one of the most successful strategies in addressing these goals revolves around the action referred to as care coordination. So in the next few moments, I'm going to talk about the challenges of coordinating your loved one's care. I'll share some tips that you or audience may may use to help uh, choose the appropriate community, medical and home care resources, uh, which can sometimes improve the patient's and caregiver's quality of life. And then during this discussion, I'll talk a bit of the significant role planning has in scheduling appointments and in having lead time to refill prescriptions. And then I'll briefly address how to plan for visitors, weekends, special occasions, travel, and holidays. And then finally, I'll present some information on some of the time-saving self-care tips for caregivers. So let's begin by explaining what care coordination means in the context of this afternoon's uh, discussion. Dr. Fleischman mentioned the name uh, or the word navigator. So it's not so much the navigator or the professional that we're talking about is doing all the care coordination. I'm going to focus more on how the family, the caregiver, and the patient can all get involved in, care, in being um, a member of the care coordination team along with all their providers. So care coordination has been described as the deliberate organization of patient care activities between two or more participants, and that includes the patient that are involved in the patient's care to make sure they get the appropriate delivery of the services. It's Organizing care means then you're going to have various team members, as Dr. Fletchman mentioned, and other resources are all needed to carry out the required patient care activities and is often managed by the exchange of information among participants responsible for different aspects of care. Successes and failures in care coordination will be perceived in different ways depending on the perspective. The patient and the family and the caregiver is going to look at it from one uh, way, care coordination. Healthcare professionals are going to have a different perception of what care coordination should be. And then even the hospitals that you go to or the, the physician's offices that you go to are going to have their own perspective of what care coordination should be. So consideration of views from these three potentially different perspectives is important when you're trying to talk about care coordination and plan so right now I'm going to focus more for, on um, care coordination from the patient or caregiver perspective. So this is any activity to makes certain a loved one's needs and preferences for services and information are being met over time, especially when sharing across people, functions, and sites. Patients, their families, and other informal caregivers may at times experience frustration in trying to coordinate activities, particularly at times when the patient may undergo transition. So another challenge faced by caregivers and patients related to time, is related to times of transition. So what do we mean by a transition or a point of transmission? So this occurs when the information um, is going to be changing uh, about the person's care or the responsibility is going to be transferred between two or more healthcare individuals. So at that point, anytime there's a point of transition, there's going to be a change or Um, some kind of shift in information and responsibility, but both of those things are going to be transferred together, person, uh, if it's the healthcare team or if it's the patient or the caregiver, information and responsibility are transferred together. So transitions can occur across um, diseases, as Dr. Fleschman mentioned, and it can occur across healthcare organizations, and over time can be accompanied again by changes in responsibility and information flow. So another challenge then when you start putting all these little pieces of puzzle together is that um, uh, the challenge of communication and exchange of information at different levels and with different providers can also become very complex. So one critical area related to communication is based on the interpersonal relationship and communication between the healthcare professionals, the patient, family, and caregiver, and then across healthcare teams and settings. So communication is going to be influenced by these periods of transitions. So it'll be, uh, it can change, the communication patterns and needs will change between episodes, say it's the initial visit when the cancer diagnosis has just been made, and then there's some follow-up visits, and then maybe there's a point then where a patient can transfer over to survivorship status. So at all those points, there's going to be some, change, some differences in the ch- exchange of information and responsibilities. It can even change, transition can even cause changes across the lifespan. So if it's an adolescent, during their developmental stages, it can have some points of transition that will be different. Or even as we get older, our needs are going to differ than when we were teenagers or young adults. So the, the information transfer and responsibility will then also shift among the care teams. And that can be the nurse, the physician, the social workers, the uh, case managers, all those pieces of 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 professions that come together to help take care of, of a patient and the family. So it's important, again, that we keep open communication. So then to add more complexity and confusion, the care is also going to change across settings. So if you are going to uh, an oncologist and getting your care and they're the leader of the team, but you want to go back to your community and have your own primary doc take care of you, that's going to involve important communication and change of responsibility uh, or ongoing uh, facilitation, like a partnership between the oncologist and the primary care. So experiencing feelings of frustration, confusion, and maybe at times just sheer exhaustion, both physically and emotionally, is expected and quite normal. So that being said, I'd like to share a few tips which may help caregivers coordinate care. First, it's important to identify local, online, or written community medical and home care resources. A great example of a community resource is cancer care. And in a moment, Dr. Messner will describe services that are offered by the organization to folks across the United States and even to our um, global listeners. Ms. Wolf also represents another important resource needed during this time. That someone who can help navigate the legal issues related to regulations, guidelines, and services by state or national resources is a critical member of a health care team. So remember, it's beneficial to create relationships with clinical and community organizations. These types of relationships can improve your loved one's access to um, access to preventive and chronic care services. So by developing these partnerships, um, everyone, even though they may be representing hypertension, the American Heart Association, the American Diabetes Association, or cancer care, they all have one goal, and that's improving the life of the patient that they're, taking, that they're helping to take care of as well as the caregivers. A second tip that you heard me just mention is to initiate and nurture effective communication with your healthcare team about appointments and medication or treatment schedules. It's important to get clean and concise information and instructions from your healthcare team. Develop and maintain open and regular communication. And clarify and verify any questions or uncertainty about anything, whether it's an appointment, a treatment plan, or a new medication. Do not be embarrassed to admit the instructions are difficult to understand or to carry out. As a caregiver, remember to inform the team about the type of side effects the patient has experienced when taking certain medications or by interactions with other uh, medications. And then one simple but often overlooked barrier relates to language preferences or healthcare literacy challenges. So you know, sometimes people are a little embarrassed to bring those up, but bring them up. It's important. Remember, each individual is unique in their response to all the different schedules and appointments and medications. So the answers to all these questions need to be tailored to the needs of the individual. A third tip is to learn the importance of planning ahead of time. That is to have some lead time whenever a holiday, weekend, or travel is scheduled. So here's a few tips for preparing for a trip and planning uh, some lead time. Keep a schedule of when refills are due. This is important and helps minimize the risk of being out of medication when you're in another state or country. Keep a small carry-on bag with all the medications if you're going to travel by plane, but just keep a small bag with, you with all the medications either stored in a prescription container or in their um, original bottles. Keep a small index card, uh, either in your wallet or the caregiver's wallet, that lists all the medications, their dosages, times to be taken and how to be taken. And then you can also, on another uh, index card, just keep track of the appointments that way. So you always have something there at your fingertips to be able to keep track. And you might also want to make copies of those cards and share them with family members or friends involved in the care of your loved one, and then maybe keep a copy on the fridge. So remember, it's important to follow the schedules of appointments, the doses, and correct medications. And there's lots of different ways to keep track of schedules. Um, you can, there's text messages now that the pharmacies often give. You can put alarms on your telephone. Um, you can create a handwritten calendar if you want to. Uh, just remember, it's important to have those triggers. So in the last few moments, I'd like to remind our callers that caregivers often place their own health and well-being on the back burner. Yet because of the multiple roles and demands, their own emotional and physical health can suffer. We cannot forget that one of the most important responsibilities in being a caregiver is to include one's self-care as part of your daily schedule. Remind yourself to maintain a balance. Plan ahead and prioritize depending on your situation. So my colleagues and I look forward to hearing from you, and you may have some suggestions you may wish to share with our callers on how you have been able to maintain a balance between appointments um, and the scheduling and all the different medications that are going on and trying to maintain a normal life. So thank you for allowing me to share these thoughts with you. This concludes my remarks.
1: Oh, uh, thank you so much, Dr. Palos. That was really wonderful. And and I, I and Dr. Palos has suggested that during the Q and A period, we would welcome comments from any of you that you have some tips to share with with others on the call because you may have figured out some things that work for you and would want to share them. And so. Please do realize that not only is it time to ask questions, but also to make a comment on something that is helped helped you um, as a as a caregiver. Um, it may be helpful then to everybody else on the call, since you're walking in those shoes and you know what this experience is like. But um, thank you so much, Dr. Palos. That was really very informative. And. I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A as well. And our next speaker is Ms. Deborah Wolf. Ms. Wolfe is an attorney. She's Senior Supervising Attorney, Legal Health, New York Legal Assistance Group, or NIWAC. And Ms. Wolf is going to be addressing legal advocacy tips for caregivers, learning how to appeal insurance, medical, Medicaid, and provider denials, other resources, VA Benefits and Family Medical Leave Act, FMLA, and finding the practical help you need, copay foundations and federal state and local programs. it's really now my pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Wolf.
4: Thank you, Dr. Messner. I'm so pleased to be a part of this teleconference this afternoon. I know that many of you on the call today are caregivers. For purposes of ease, I'll be referring to you or yours when discussing insurance, but I knew that I do know that you are here due to your caregiving of family and friends. I'm going to first discuss appealing insurance claims, I'll also briefly discuss federal and state coverage, and some resources for for navigating the complex world of insurance, and finally just some more tips on what you can do to help avoid insurance issues and unnecessary work, and I'll also mention some of the resources that are out there to help you as a caregiver provide assistance to your loved ones. In discussing health insurance appeals, it's important to keep in mind that there are different types of insurance plans, and those include group policies from employment, union benefits, and privately purchased policies, as well as policies available through the marketplace. I'll also discuss Medicaid and Medicare. The appeal rules are different for each one, and this will be very general advice relating to all. If a claim is denied, you are given the steps to appeal in the denial notice, so make sure to read through any denials for this important information. I want to start with tips on how best to avoid insurance issues. The first step is to take the time to understand the benefits and limitations of your health plan. The most important advice I can give is to have and read a copy of your policy, or at the very least a summary description. This will outline benefits, any coverage limits, and the appeals process, which we'll discuss in a bit. Your insurance company representative can also be a very good resource to call if you have questions about what is or is not covered. Policies can also limit certain coverages, such as out-of-network doctors, or the amount of physical therapy or home nursing visits allowed per year. So it's important to review the policies offered and discuss with those who offer support, such as the medical team or a social worker, to make sure you'll be covered for all necessary treatment and care. Even with current insurance protections, claims are sometimes denied. Denials can be for many reasons. For example, a specific medical service the insurance company determines is not medically necessary or that the service is not covered under the plan. Also, if you need to see a specialist and feel that you have to go out of network for the best care, the insurance company could deny services but there are exceptions and it's important to remember that your insurance company saying no right now may not be the final decision later. The insurance company is required to provide an explanation of benefit called an EOB for each claim reviewed. The EOB outlines the amount paid by insurance, your required contribution, which could be a copay or coinsurance, or if they're not paying the reasons for denial. It's important to read every EOB to make sure the claim has been paid, and if not paid, the reasons for the denial. When a claim is denied, your first step should be to call the insurance company right away to discuss. There's many reasons why a claim may be denied, and often the insurance company just needs more documentation from the doctor's office to approve. Claims are also sometimes denied for administrative reasons that are easy to fix. Make sure to keep track of every call or letter writing down the date and who you spoke with at the insurance company. If the matter cannot be resolved by speaking with the insurance company, you have the right to file an appeal directly with the insurance company. Often the first appeal is submitted through your doctor's office, so be sure to discuss with your medical team. In your written appeal, document the reasons you disagree with the denial, and always be sure to include medical records and a letter from the treating doctor. If the insurance company denies the appeal, you then will have the right to request what's called an external review, which gives you the right to file an appeal to an outside, objective, and independent panel no matter where you live and what type of health insurance you have. If the external reviewer overturns the denial, your insurer must give you the payments or services you requested in your claim. The good news is that many denied claims that are appealed are finally allowed coverage, and the percentage for an ex- for external reviews is even higher. It's very important to make sure you understand your time limits to file an appeal, as these are very strict deadlines. They can vary from 180 days if it's a policy from your job to as little as 60 days depending on the plan. If a claim is denied, you will receive written notice about how to appeal. So again, you must read these notices. Along with private health plans, either from employment or the marketplace, people often access insurance through Medicare, Medicaid, or if you are a veteran, through the Veterans Administration. Medicare and Medicaid are both government-sponsored health insurances. Medicare is a federal program with rules that are uniform to all participants in all 50 states. Medicaid is a federal-state partnership, and coverage is free. Eligibility rules are established by each state and vary depending on where you live. So it's really important to understand your state Medicaid requirements. Access is being is based on being low income with a limit on how much you can have in income and assets. Medicaid can provide needed home care, transportation, or full prescription coverage not offered with any other insurances. So again, it's important to know your state Medicaid rules because many states will allow access to Medicaid for people who are disabled, even if their income is higher than the general than the amount that Medicaid generally allows. Both Medicare and Medicaid have appeals processes, but it's very different from private insurance. Medicare sends out a quarterly summary of claims. However, they may also send a separate denial for our requested services of requested service. And that notice will provide appeal deadlines. Medicare has multiple levels of appeals and the appeal time limits vary depending on the level. In the Medicare appeals I've handled for clients, I find Medicare to be very helpful when I call for a status, but they don't send out a lot of correspondence about the appeal. So it's important to stay on top and call often. With Medicaid, the rules vary state by state, so it's important to check your state laws which govern Medicaid appeals. Anytime there is a denial of either a claim or coverage, again, they do have to provide written notice and information on how to appeal and request a fair hearing. There are two excellent resources for not only Medicare appeals, but really everything about Medicare from eligibility to troubleshooting. The first is the Medicare website, Medicare.gov, which has a lot of useful information. If there's a problem or question the website can't help with, there's a terrific organization called the Medicare Rights Center. They have an interactive website at medicarerights.org and also a call-in number to speak to somebody who can discuss and help resolve any concerns or questions you may have. I also want to briefly address services for our veterans. If you served in the military for even a day, you may be eligible for VA benefits. Coverage varies, and there are priority groups based on factors such as service-related disabilities, prisoners of war, homebound vets, and more. Levels of coverage and co-pay- copayments, including those for prescriptions, are complicated, and they vary. So if you're a vet, you can call the Veterans Health Administration to determine what you may be eligible for. There are also a growing number of legal service organizations which provide help to veterans. Here in New York City, we have a number of programs to meet the legal needs of our vets. Some web-based research or a call to your local bar association may provide referrals for the help you need. I've also been asked to suggest or discuss legal advocacy tips for caregivers. I want to start by mentioning a law, the Family Medical Leave Act, or FMLA, that's very important to caregivers who are employed. FMLA applies to employers with 50 or more employees, and to be covered, you must have worked at your job for 12 months, and for 1,250 hours in the last year, that generally comes out to about three hours per week. If an employee qualifies, They're entitled to 12 weeks of job-protected leave every 12 months. This is either for their own serious health condition or to care for a spouse, child, or parent. FMLA can be taken in a block of time up to 12 weeks or intermittently on an as-needed basis. So, for example, if your family member has chemo every other Thursday, you can request intermittent FMLA for every other Thursday and even the following Friday up to an equivalent of 12 weeks. It can also be requested just on an as-needed basis to attend doctor's appointments with your loved ones. Employee benefits, such as health insurance, must continue, although the employee must continue to pay any contributions made for the premiums. Regarding insurance, this is the most important tip I can offer. Make sure to read every letter received, including the explanation of benefits. I talk to people all the time who lost coverage because they did not feel well enough to open and read their mail. We need to know what's going on in order to address any issues that may come up, and this is a very important role for a caregiver, because if you miss deadlines, you may lose coverage. I've discussed a few options for insurance, including private plans, Medicare and Medicaid, and VA benefits. It's possible to be eligible for more than one of these. For example, Medicaid and Medicare together, veterans benefits and Medicare or Medicaid, or private insurance and any of the others. The rules are complex, but do make sure that you maximize whatever benefits you may be entitled to. This is especially true with Medicare, which pays only 80% of claims, 20% can be very costly, and a person with Medicare definitely needs a secondary plan to cover this gap. Medicare also has inadequate coverage for prescriptions and often cancer drugs have very high copays, so it's important to look into meeting this gap through secondary coverage or programs that are available such as extra help, which I'll talk about in a minute, or copayment assistance foundations. I often refer my clients who need copay assistance to organizations such as Cancer Care or the Patient Advocate Foundation. There are many resources out there to assist with high copayments. For Medicare recipients, there are programs on a state or federal level that assist lower income Medicare recipients. This includes extra help, which helps with Medicare drug costs for lower income Medicare recipients. There's also the Medicare Savings Program, which varies state to state, but if a person qualifies Their Medicare premium is paid by the state, and many states have special rules for the disabled to access Medicaid, as I mentioned, even if they have a higher income. I know this is a lot of information. I also know that it's often difficult to keep on top of insurance and other matters with so much else going on, but with an understanding of the rights and responsibilities, as well as help from your medical team and groups like Cancer Care, you will be able to navigate any insurance issues or questions that come up for yourself or or for your family member. It's important to use all of the resources available through these organizations or through your cancer center. I do want to mention that there is a National Cancer Legal Service Network, a group of attorneys like myself who offer free legal assistance or advice to people with cancer. And you can check to see what help may be available in your state, and that website is nclsn.org. Thanks so much, and I look forward to your questions, and I'll turn this back to Dr. Messner.
1: Oh, thank you so much, Um, Ms. Wolf. that was really so comprehensive and a lot of information. And I should remind everyone that the program exists in real time, and you're all listening to it now. But you can listen to it on replay, um, as a telephone replay or as a podcast. Just give it a day or two and it's up, and you'll be able to hear it. We also, all the resources that are mentioned by any of the speakers during the program, when you get your evaluation at the end of the program, It'll actually be in a day or two you'll get the evaluation. All the resources that are mentioned and then some additional ones will be there for you to access as well. So I know you're trying to write all this down, but to some extent just to be aware that that information will also be sent to you so you don't miss anything. And, of course, you can always listen to the program as often as you want to, 365 days a a year, um, uh, 24 hours a day. So they're, they're always there for you to some extent to listen to. Um, and um, I just—we are going to take questions in just a moment. I just want to say a few words about the services you can access from Cancer Care, and then we're going to take as many of your questions as possible. Um, Cancer Care is a national organization, and we—we we are staffed by oncology social workers, all master's level trained, and they provide a host of services from practical to financial assistance. We do also have a copay foundation. And we also offer all types of opportunities to talk with our staff about concerns that you may have so that you may speak with our oncology social workers on the phone or online and we do have a number of different support groups as well both telephone support groups and online support groups and those groups um, are for people both who are caregivers for people who are um, all different ages with all different types of cancers with all different types of issues but there are lots of caregiver support groups as well um, and um and also caregivers of different ages and um, young adults middle-aged adults older adults um, so basically um basically the online groups have about 138 groups going on so there's a, should be something there for everyone you can um, visit our website uh Care cancercare.org, and you'll be able to access information about joining one of the online support groups or any of our groups or any of our services as well, or you can contact us at 800-813-4673. And you'll be getting, again, that information, again, um, with with your evaluation form, all that information about how you can contact Cancer Care. Um, And um, we also offer um, these programs, of course, quite regularly, and these education workshops, and we also have many publications, and of course our website has lots of information as well. So, um, And you'll be able to access all the programs that we do, the workshops on, on the website after they occur as well. So with that all being said, we now have time for questions. I'm going to ask um, Norma to bring all of our speakers on board, and also I'm going to ask um, her to explain to you how to queue up for questions, and we're going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. So, um,
0: Norma. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star, then 1 on your touchstone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. You may also ask a question by clicking ask a question on your web. web. Uh, just click ask, submit. Again, ladies and gentlemen, to ask a question, please press star, then 1. And we have a question in front of our
1: online participants. Um, and um, so I'm going to direct this question first to Dr. Palos. Um, so pills, pills, pills. I love your tips on scheduling. Are there portable devices that you can recommend to help remind my mother to follow her schedule? We have three alarm clocks in our home, but she needs reminders when she leaves the house. So Dr. Palos, if you could just address this in a way that might be helpful to this particular caller. Sure.
3: Um that's a good question and it's going to depend um somewhat to um on how comfortable your mom may be with all the new technology that's there. So I'm going to start first with the traditional way. If there's a, if your mom wears a watch of some time, you can put the alarms into the watch and that way she's if she wears the watch all the time, then that's a nice cue for her to have um uh, to remind her of that you know she needs to be taking her medication especially if there's so many different times and so many um different types of medications. The second thing is on the uh technology, there are lots of different new programs that um are available online and some of them would include like uh the text messages if uh there's a phone if there's a, uh, even on the phone if your mom doesn't use one of these fancy smartphones but just uses a regular small what you know phone. For calling and you know making calls and getting calls, even on that they usually have an alarm clock there. So that would be another way is to go ahead and and set up the alerts there. Um, you know we have a joke at my house. At eight o'clock in our our, our house, it's We hear Azor time, and it's a certain song, a tune that reminds my mom over and over again. Okay, this is the time you're supposed to be taking this type of medication. So we've associated an alert also with a different sound, so that way she'll recognize that that's the, you know, that sound means I take this type of pill. So that might work uh, for your for your mom also, you know, and that. The index card is another way, but you know that means your mom would have to be digging in her purse or whatever her bag to be trying to pull that out. But I think to start with, and it's trial and error. Start with something on a watch, uh, a wrist, a wristband watch, and or a telephone, and see how well those take. And then if those do well, then we can uh, you can start exploring ways that with uh, some of the computerized, uh, like for Fitbits and some of those other types of, of
1: gadgets like
3: that. I hope that
1: helps. Oh, thank you so much. Thanks. And um a question for Dr. Fleischman. I want to know how I can be most helpful to my eighty-five year old friend with cancer. What are the challenges of being an older person with cancer? How can I be most helpful without seeming too pushy? I you could address that in a general way.
2: Yeah, that's uh, <laughs> being friendly <laughs> and being pushy, sometimes there's a fine line between those mm. two. I think being there is probably the most important thing, and I know that sounds um, kind of minimalistic, but being there is really important because cancer can be a lonely experience. Um, asking her what she would like you to do is a second way. Um, third way may be um, keeping an outline or a calendar, whether it's on paper or electronic, of all the things that need to be done. Um, not necessarily for you to do, but for other people, if she has other people in her life, to to do that. And um, I guess the, the other thing is um, to help her reminisce because oh, when all of us, older or younger, um, are ill, we sometimes fall back on old patterns and thinking about um, times we were sick when we were little or good times. And reminiscing is a good way. Nice personalized way to pass the time it's not a um it's not on the phone it's not on a computer but it's a conversation between people
1: excellent thank you that's um but that's, that's helpful to our uh, caller um and um a question for um my question for dr um Palos. um So what is the best way to help coordinate communication between various doctors and specialists, my uncle, who has cancer, glaucoma, and diabetes?
3: Oh, That's a good question. It's very challenging also depending on the location that you are. Um, There's a a technique that's called family conferences, and uh, that can be used in a couple of different ways. You can get if you're in a comprehensive cancer center or one facility where all the services are being provided, then you can arrange a family uh, conference with a whole healthcare team. So that might be one way that you could bring everyone. But if you're talking about having a healthcare team that's the oncology team in one facility and then maybe your primary care team in another facility, it becomes very challenging. So some of the techniques that we've used, again, has been Skype. That's been something that has worked where we get everyone together so you don't have to be in the same physical location, but you're still able to communicate. The other, again, I mean, this technology world that we have now uh, with smartphones, they also have FaceTime. So we've done a couple of things, of uh, family conferences with FaceTime so we can bring everyone together. And that's been helpful for when we've had caregivers that are long-distance caregivers because they can't always be in a certain place at a certain time. So that's one way that we can schedule a time. We try not to make them too long but enough to where we will highlight important points and then come back, you know, kind of summarize at the end the action items and then the things that you'd like to discuss for the next time. So those that would be some ways of doing it in in a world where we don't always live in the same hometown or anything like that.
1: Thank you. And um, a question for Dr. Ms. Wolf. Um, so f- um, from one of our online participants, a question about um, the healthcare proxy and power of attorney um, for a family member um, in terms of that, um, getting that in place so that they can um, help more formally with decision-making? And um, could you just comment on that?
4: Sure. Um, just I want to start by saying that the rules do vary state by state, but um, the two forms are, are very different. So a healthcare proxy is a form that a person can sign and designate an agent, another person, to make healthcare decisions for them should they become unable to communicate with their doctor. And generally, a healthcare proxy will not take effect until the person who signs the document, called the principal or the patient, loses capacity. Um, in most states, it's a pretty easy form. It doesn't need a lawyer. Um, generally, we'll need two witnesses, and oftentimes, even when somebody presents at the hospital, they have healthcare proxy forms. So it's it's an important form to think about because it will you know it it will give somebody else the power to make to to express what your what your wishes are should you be un, come unable to communicate with your team most states also have what we call surrogate healthcare decision laws which means that if a person doesn't have a healthcare agent the law will designate certain people who can speak on behalf of that patient but um, it takes away the choice of the patient. And sometimes they don't want the person that's on the surrogate list to be the, that, that agent. So it's really important to do a healthcare proxy. A power of attorney is usually the forms are more complicated than the healthcare proxy forms, but they allow a person to designate an agent to help them with non medical decisions. This could be to help them with banking. It could help them with high housing. Let's say they need to recertify their lease and they're not feeling well enough to do it um, to help them with fine insurance forms. So you have to be very cautious in who you choose as an agent because they may have access to your bank account. They may have access to important documents. So it's very important to choose somebody that you trust 100% to be your agent for purposes of a power of attorney. Unlike a healthcare proxy, once a power of attorney is signed and put in place, it's generally effective immediately. The person doesn't necessarily have to lose capacity. So again, very important to to think about who you would want to be an agent. The two documents are really important because if a person has these, it could avoid the need to go to court for a court appointed guardianship should somebody lose capacity, which can be a very long and complicated and expensive process. So, you know, definitely important to talk to an attorney about the power of attorney and also you know, to consider a healthcare proxy.
1: Excellent. Thank you so much. And um, it's so important and something to really discuss, actually, with your healthcare team, and really putting those things in place are important for people. Um, so, thank you. Um, so, this is a question um, from one of our online participants. Um, I'm going to ask. Um, uh, Mr. Fleischman, if you could start with it, but I think I'd like everyone to sort of weigh in on it a little bit. My mother is caring for her partner, and I'm afraid she's getting too exhausted. How can I find someone to help her part-time?
2: Also, good question, very common thing that happens. We all get exhausted. Um, it depends upon what needs to be done. If uh, it's a, a matter of act- what we call sometimes activities of daily living, which is an odd term for the basic things we need help with every day, dressing or bathing or meal preparation, things like that. Um, you may need to call in favors from friends, from people in the community, often um church, synagogue, mosque groups, uh, or whatever uh, religious denomination you belong to are very helpful, in giving respite to a family member or friend who's been caring for someone and they're just plain exhausted. Um, If it's driving, obviously somebody needs a car and a driver's license and the capacity to be able to help mom in and out of a car and two appointments. That's a very very specific thing and sometimes there are uh, local agencies um, that can help out. American Cancer Society may be able to help with some of those things. Or some of the um the social philanthropic groups in many parts of in all parts of the country in many cities like Lions Club or uh, I don't want to leave anybody out but um the, the rotary club they, those type, types of social business organizations often have volunteer corps to help out. Um, Ask at uh, a treatment center if there is an American Cancer Society uh, office in your region that has any of this practical help. Finally, some families will actually pay somebody to take uh, some of the burden off of it. That becomes uh, expensive at times, but often necessary. Uh, There are a variety of different types of agencies to go to. There are certified home care agencies uh, that will come in and assess exactly what the skills are for somebody to come in and help. It may be more what they call custodial or activities of daily living, like I described, rather than skilled nursing needs, and they'll know how to parse that out and figure out what's what. Uh, There are many employment agencies ask a lot of questions. In the United States, we ask for something called bonding, where a person's background is checked, just to make sure they can be more help than not. Um, I, I, that's the other, our other participants also have ideas for this.
1: Thank you very much, Dr. Fleischman and um, Dr. Palos. Oh, well, that's, that, I, Dr. Fleischman gave a lot of
3: really good um, examples of what folks could do. Sometimes if if the parent is an older person, they don't always like to have strangers coming into their home. So a good place to start is just with your local networks around you, and that would include your mom's friends, your mom and your partner's friends. Um, Talk to them. I, sometimes what happens is everyone assumes everything is going all right. So it's good to communicate, to not only communicate like milestones, hey, the treatment ended today or whatever, but also my, you know, request for help. Hey, I'm getting burned out. I need uh, one afternoon by myself. Is there someone you think that could come and stay with mom, or could you take mom, you know, for a ride or um, to the movies or whatever it is that your, you know, your mom or your, uh, the person would would enjoy um, having time spent. And the the other that sometimes we we forget and it's kind of a coined phrase is our faith-based organizations. Um, many of them, and you don't always have to be a member. Many of them now offer social services. They they even have case managers. Um, I learned here during Hurricane Harvey that we there are disaster case managers even. So you know, um, if you want to claim that it's a disaster and you need you know some some, some respite care or someone needs some respite care, um, you can explain that situation because everyone knows what it's like to deal. In some manner with someone who has some type of chronic disease, if not cancer, then one of the others. So I would I, I would tighten the circle a little bit more and just start in at first with the, the people you know and that your mom feel or your the family member and the caregiver would feel comfortable with, and then from there start. You know, if if you have all the other options that are that are there that Dr. Fleschman, um uh, addressed, I, that would be the other thing that you might be able to do. Is then. Um, you know, just kind of—it's a trial and error. It's not going to be an easy fix. It's a trial and error period that you're going to go through. So, uh, and this is different.
4: Deb. Oh. Sorry, Uh
3: no. Go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, this
4: is Deborah. If I could just jump in and add, check your insurance policy. A lot of insurance plans do offer some home care. Even Medicare has limited home care under some circumstances. And also talk to an attorney about Medicaid planning. Medicaid generally provides in New York State. It provides unlimited home care. And there's a lot of programs for people to become eligible for Medicaid if they have a disability such as cancer. even if they're over income. But but talk to your insurance representative as well, because if you have a private plan, it could offer home care benefits.
1: Oh, excellent. Wow, that, that's a really excellent suggestion. These are all wonderful suggestions, everybody. And um, I really want to thank all of our speakers. You've been just phenomenal. Just an amazing call today. And I want to thank all of you who've been listening as well and asking such great questions online. And all of you who've been listening. And um, I want to remind you that this is an hour program, and I know there are many more questions in queue. So I do want to actually um, give you tips and things in terms of um, questions you may still have, or even, even when you asked a question, what you do with the answers, take it back to your healthcare team. So, we never want to sidestep, of course, your healthcare team. And so, we want you to take whatever information you've learned back to your treating healthcare team in terms of how to implement some of these suggestions that have been made on today's call. And really, a lot of, really, a huge amount of information from today for you to implement in terms of, you know, for caregivers and really taking good care of yourselves. Um, and I think I am taking good care of the person that you care about in terms of coordinating their care. Um, I, I think I also just want to stress that you certainly can contact Cancer Care if you're having um, further questions. You can call our 800 number um, or visit our website. You'll be getting all that information again, um, you know, um, all that information you'll be getting again, um, you know, with with your evaluation form um, when we receive that. Um, most importantly, we don't want anyone to feel like you're alone in coping with these issues and questions and concerns that you may have. We want you to now know that you're part of a really a whole community of support here, and we're all here to help you. And, um, and again, there are many organizations that can help you, Cancer Care is being one of them, um, and um, you can contact us at 800-813-4673 or visit our website at cancercare.org. And I also want to mention there's a part... Um, this is part five to this five-part series, which is um, participating in decisions about your care, which I think is a con- nice continuation for today's program. And that program will happen on Wednesday, June 19th, so this week um, on Wednesday so, um, uh, and same time. So um, we look forward to being on that call, some of you are already, and I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all.